Knowledge is power, and we are all about empowering the mamas of the world. In each episode, we will unravel and interpret the latest research and evidence-based practices for pregnancy, postpartum, and motherhood. As mums and researchers ourselves, we have experienced firsthand the overwhelming complexity of information, myths, and those classic old wives' tales. I'm Dr. Renee White, and this is the Science of Motherhood. Hello and welcome to episode 96 of the Science of Motherhood. I'm your host, Dr. Renee White. Thank you so much for joining me today. We have a very cool guest today. It's on a topic around maternal instinct. It's something that we talk about all the time. I see memes about it. I've joked about it, the fact that you know, people have said, oh, you know, I am just, I'm not going to research much. I'm just going to like lean into my maternal intuition and just go with it. And I do joke about the fact that, you know, evidently that never arrived and I blamed FedEx and Australia Post for it. (laughs) But this particular guest caught my eye when she said to me, I want to jump, I want to come onto the podcast and talk about maternal instinct or intuition. And I thought, yes, absolutely. We need to get this out in the open because I think She looks at the science around it and that just really, really speaks to me. But before we dive in there, I just wanted to mention we have had some really beautiful reviews come in recently for this podcast and I just wanted to extend a really big thank you to those who have recently reviewed and left some really, really nice comments. So thank you, thank you so much to those people out there who have done that. And if you would like to leave a review for us. If you think that this podcast is making your week, making your day, if you have forwarded any of our episodes onto friends, family, or otherwise, please leave a review for us. We would absolutely love that because in the world of algorithms, (laughs) this is what gives us a better access to a bigger audience. And we are all about educating and empowering to fill the void in what is otherwise a very, very busy and overwhelming space, which is motherhood and parenthood. It's tough. But our aim has always been to, I guess, bridge the gap between researchers and experts in their particular field and make sure that you have got access to them um, and the amazing research that they do. So it's not sitting dusty on a shelf or behind some sort of, you know, journal paywall. So yes, if you have found any of these episodes interesting, amazing, heartfelt, um, we would love to hear from you. Please just jump in and leave a review for us. That would be absolutely amazing. So let's kick off the episode. Our guest today is Anya Dunham. She is a research scientist She's a mum of three. She has a PhD in biology and studies ecology, which um, for all those playing at home is the ways living things relate to one another and interact with their environment. She is also an author, an award-winning book, which is called Baby Ecology. She looks at child development research through the lens of her scientific field and helps parents create physical and emotional environments in their homes that work best for their unique babies. This is what I love about Anya. It's not a one size fits all. She has, she has literally, and you will hear this, this is episode or part one of two for Anya. She isn't going to be joining us again later in the program, but she has essentially dedicated 
her, I think it's going to be like the last five years, I think it is, of just researching around the ecology of babies and parenthood and motherhood and things like that. And one particular topic that we're going to talk about today is maternal instinct and how she believes that the concept is in fact a myth and there is something else going on there. And she's pulled together research and papers and data around that. And we talk about this at length about the fact that, you know, what is this gut feeling that we feel? How does it differ from, you know, conscience, evidence-based knowledge in parenting? What is actually going on there? You know, what are the influences that take place with this gut feeling or, or intuition? You know, is it cultural beliefs? Is it parenting fads? Is it, you know, your previous history and and experiences and I guess our imprints as well. And then we talk around the practicalities. So how parents can, I guess, effectively communicate and collaborate to blend their individual intuitions because, you know, more often than not, and I'm not trying to exclude solo parents, but more often than not, then there are two people raising or more than two people raising a child, you know, you might have support from your friends and family as well. How does that all, you know, come into a cohesive parenting approach? And then for those who, you know, hands up, my hand is well and truly up. When you are in those trenches in the newborn days, like you feel so overwhelmed and anxious about not knowing like what to do. How do you alleviate some of that stress? What are the first steps? What are the strategies? So this is such a great interview. Anya provides an amazing amount of insight and not just, you know, personal insight, but she backs it up with research and data. Like this woman knows her stuff. She has read a lot of articles around all of these topics. So I will stop babbling. You will start listening to her and me chat about this. If you've got any thoughts, any follow-up questions, I would love to hear them. Please drop into our email, hello at ifillyourcup.com or slip into our DMs on Instagram at fillyourcup, all one word, underscore. So without further ado, here is Anya Dunham. Hello and welcome to the podcast, Anya Dunham. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you. Thank you for having me as your guest today. Oh, my pleasure. Now we have just spoken briefly offline. It is currently 10 a.m. on a Wednesday here in, well, it is sunny Hobart here in, in Australia, but you are coming from the other, the other end of the earth. Yes. Can you much. tell us where are you coming from? Where are you recording from? <laughs> I am in British Columbia, Canada on Vancouver Island. So it's uh, 5 p.m. on a Tuesday here. So we're quite a bit uh, behind you. <laughs> <laughs> now, Anya, listeners would have heard from the introduction that you're not only a research scientist, but you're a mum of three and that you have a PhD in biology, that you've studied ecology and also the fact that you're an author as well, which we, we will get to. In today's discussion, we're going to talk about motherly intuition. And this is something that for the listeners who have listened to my birth story, I think it's in episode three, I talk about motherly intuition and how I 
I think I was, <laughs> I think I was blindsided by society where people were saying to me, you know, oh, don't worry about like doing too much research when the baby comes, you know, for when the baby comes and, you know, just lean into that motherly intuition that you'll have. And I joke and I say, you know, about three, four weeks in, I was like, uh, did I forget to order this motherly intuition? Like when is this, like, you know, I did FedEx like forget to deliver it to my house because I have no idea what this motherly intuition thing is that people keep banging on about. And it actually caused a bit of anxiety because I was like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Like, (laughs) is this something wrong with me? What's going on? So today we're going to talk about this concept of motherly intuition and we're going to do a nice big deep dive. But before we get to that, I would love for you to tell the listeners about who you are, how you came to this kind of area and your expertise. Thank you. Yeah. So as you mentioned, I am a research scientist. I have a PhD in biology and I study ecology, the way living things interact uh, with one another and with their environment. And I've got three kids. My eldest is 12 and my youngest is three. So we're sort of spanning um, the whole range of early childhood to uh, preteen years. Uh, Mm -hmm. which is really fun and uh, challenging in all the good ways. And I am the author of Baby Ecology, um, a book that explores the science behind baby's first year. Mm. So I can very much relate to what you just said about being kind of lost uh, when my first baby was born. So by that time, so that was 12 years ago. And by that point, I already had my PhD and I've had about 10 years in the lab and in the field doing biological research. And I do like to be prepared. So I read a number of parenting books and a number of books on birth and postpartum. And yet when my daughter arrived, I kind of felt like a deer in the headlights in a sense. Mm. I just felt so overwhelmed. And so just the whole experience and that whole transition and the baby felt so important. And so, and that responsibility felt sort of heavy. It felt Mm. overwhelming. And so now that I think back about it, I think that a lot of it had to do with that expectation Mm -hmm. That with the baby, a certain amount of knowledge would just magically show up and that I would just know what to do. Because, you know, like before she was born, I Googled some like the names of baby clothing items. Like what is a onesie and what is a footie pajama and how many of each do I need? (laughs) You know, things like that. Because that that mandatory or obligatory hospital bag checklist that everyone downloads from Pinterest now. (laughs) Right, exactly. Right. But then I thought, that, you know, a lot of the other things I would just like, I would just know when my baby's here, I would have that maternal instinct that would help me take care of her. And then of course that didn't come. And what I know now after having um, done a deep dive into all the studies is that maternal instinct really doesn't exist. And that um, sort of in the sense of this magical set of knowledge and skills that just becomes available to mothers or fathers or any other caregivers when we become parents. So when we begin taking care of a baby, it's just, it's just not there. And it's very, very normal expected 
and and really very much what we are supposed to feel. We are supposed to feel overwhelmed. Like parenthood is so important that it is meant to overwhelm us. And we're not meant to know what to do. But it's not easy, right? Because what does kick in after looking at the research, what does kick in is what in the scientific literature is called the parental care motivation system or the caregiving drive, right? And that's, um, and that is something that is subconscious and it is indeed activated when we become parents or, and it's, it happens very quickly within milliseconds, our brains react to babies in a certain way. And interestingly, even adults who are not parents show similar brain activation patterns when they see babies or hear babies cry. It's like, we're all meant to care. Mm -hmm. Um, And what that drive does is it makes us sort of more alert, more caring, more risk averse. So all these qualities that help us be good caregivers, be good parents. But they don't tell us, they they sort of, they make us want to care for our babies the best we can, Mm -hmm. but they don't tell us how. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, and so do we, do we know from the research exactly what that caregiving drive is, is it, you know, an, an uptick in a particular hormone or is it neural kind of synapses, you know, kind of coming together and forming? Like, what does that look like? I think that's the biochemist in me wanting to know, like, what exactly is going on? (laughs) From what I understand, it's a bit of both. Um, So it's sort of our certain brain activation pattern and a surgeon, certain hormones that, uh, that makes that happen. And it sort of happens without our conscious sort of desire to, to, for this response to occur. It just happens Mm -hmm. to us naturally. That's the way our bodies respond, which is really in a sense, very beautiful. And it also, the fact that it happens regardless of the person's gender, age, or any other sort of parameters, it's, it's not only available to mothers, it's available to dads and to other committed Mm -hmm. caregivers. It's, um, it's there for all of us. Uh, But it's not easy because that alone can be kind of overwhelming, that sense of wanting to do the best you can, but not necessarily knowing how to do that. Yeah, exactly. And they say, you know, parenthood doesn't come with an instruction book and it really doesn't. But as I think it's this misnomer and I think I've got a couple of questions around this, like, okay, so, you know, we've got this kind of caregiving drive, it's kicking in unconsciously. And as you've kind of touched on, we don't actually have the instructions yet. We're not really kind of working out straight away via osmosis, as we could probably say, oh, ding we know how to become a parent, you know, that's all great. So I guess the, your work with that I've been reading, you know, you highlight that intuition or this kind of, you know, gut feeling we want to call it can be a blend of, you know, experiences, cultural beliefs, biases, and even parenting fads. You know, these are the things that are kind of informing that gut feeling that we feel like as well. Can you, I guess, explain, you know, to parents, like how do you distinguish between, 
you know, reliable intuition that kind of stems from that caregiving experience versus like, you know, potentially misleading intuition, which is like influence from like cultural norms and trends, you know, social media stuff that we see. How do we distinguish between that? Yeah, it's such a tricky thing to do, but it's certainly possible and science can help us with that as well. So, you know, just to kind of backtrack a little bit, when we first become parents, it makes sense that we don't have that intuitive knowledge or the gut feeling, right? Because we still, we haven't actually met this new baby, this new person Mm -hmm. that is now in our lives. And we haven't yet met ourselves as a new parent. And I think that's a big one, right? Because like, I just remember that first time driving home from the hospital with my first baby and thinking like, oh my goodness, this world, like the whole world has changed. And how is like all these buildings are still here? (laughs) And like, I'm so glad that you said that. (laughs) Yes. I felt the exact same thing. Did you feel like And I know I'm jumping in a little bit, but I would just recall that feeling as well, where you get into the same car that you, you know, went to the hospital in and you're driving down the same road that you have driven down, you know, hundreds of times to your house and you walk into the same house that you left, but everything feels different. I actually felt like, um, what's that movie inception, you know? (laughs) You know, the movie Inception where like the buildings are like moving and everything's morphing. It felt like the Matrix as well. Like you're just like, why does everything feel so different? Yeah, I can absolutely relate <laughs> to that. And that that was my exact experience. And it seemed like, well, the grass is still the same height, the trees, everything, the buildings is the same. And that my whole world has changed just so profoundly. And yeah. that was a very very strange experience. And, but of course, right, because we kind of, in a sense, are now new people, like, because we're parents and we have to give ourselves a bit of time and grace and space to get to know ourselves as parents. And then of course we have to get to know our babies for Mm. the, the people that they are, their temperament, their likes, their dislikes. And I think, and so this is where that gut feeling, that intuition can be developed alongside our babies by watching them and by sort of growing with them. Because Mm -hmm. what studies show is that intuition or like the gut feeling, or we might call it like that sixth sense, you know, when we Mm -hmm. do know that like something is maybe wrong and like maybe we need to go to the doctor, something is right, like something is quite unique about our child. And that actually does exist. And it's quite a real form of knowledge, even though it's again, subconscious. So it's the way that our brain stores memories and then very quickly, almost instantly accesses and combines them at the right time to give us Mm -hmm. that sixth sense, that understanding, oh, that's what's going on, or this is what I need to do in this moment. And so, so that certainly exists, but again, it doesn't come on magically because we need that time to develop those memories and to develop that knowledge of our babies. And so, like you said, the best source of that intuition is just watching and getting to know our unique children, whether it's a baby or an older child, because things change so much as they grow that we have to almost like get to know them every day, I feel, you know, in in some way and get to know ourselves because we change and grow as well. 
but then, so that is, of course, like the best source of our intuitive knowledge uh, as parents is our kids. But then there could be other things like culture could be sending us messages through which we may consciously or subconsciously sort of absorb throughout our whole lives. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because of course, you know, growing up in a certain culture helps children to sort of understand the world around them and sort of see and experience what they're likely to experience later outside their home. And a lot of, and of course that culture could be near and dear to our hearts and that's a very good thing. But it's it also could be important to understand where this what we think of as intuition might be coming from. Like, is it truly because of how our children are? Or is that some message that we internalized? Because another uh, source that intuition can draw from would be maybe biases and fads, like something we heard on the news, something someone told us a while ago, and especially I think our fears, because that's something that can just... It's just so intense, right? That Mm -hmm. sometimes it's a fear that jumps to the forefront and we could mistake that for intuition. And Mm. so, so it can be challenging to sort of parse where that particular knowledge, what we think of as intuitive knowledge is coming from. Like, is it our observations, our experience with our kids? Is it a, some sort of cultural conditioning, cultural messaging, or is that maybe biases or fads or that Instagram post or, you know, uh, immediate, like another, an article in the news that we saw a year ago and it just sort mm-hmm. of popped into our heads. So that's the big challenge for sure. Yeah. I'm so glad that you raised the social media kind of fads because I think, you know, that is the absolute catalyst motivation for this podcast because I just kept seeing so much fluff, I call it, on the internet. And I just kind of thought to myself, wow, you know, if this is the information that we're feeding our parents, and as you say, you know, you're absorbing that information, you're filing it away into your memory. And then if that's the piece of information that you pluck out that you're kind of leaning on in terms of, you know, informing your intuition, that that's potentially dangerous, right? Particularly if those people who are, you know, just creating a reel or, you know, a carousel or whatever it is, and they look like they're in a position of authority because they've got, you know, 10 million followers or whatever it is, but then in actual fact, they've got no qualifications or they could have read something. And I've most often I see things where it's um, they've just taken like a snippet out of context and like, you know, fashioned it to suit their agenda. And I just kind of think, wow, that's, that's really dangerous. I think that's the most dangerous one. Exactly. It's when it's just sort of a a snippet from a larger, broader body of knowledge that then gets kind of out of context, amplified and -hmm. applied to situations that it actually should never be applied to, or it's turned around somehow. And then sometimes even like mass media would pick it up and then it just becomes this big thing that everyone misunderstood. And that's, uh, that can be quite dangerous. And and I think those things, and especially ones that sort of 
feed on fears or anxiety can be something that proliferates and then mm. comes up for us in, when we least expect it. And that's, uh, yeah, and that's especially when it appears to be science-based in that way, mm. but it might, maybe it's not. It's just a very narrow, small part of what science tells us. Yeah. Absolutely. Can I ask you, I mean, I'm a mum of one, you're a mum of three. What, what does that experience feel like in terms of your maternal instinct and intuition when you go from, you know, child one to two, two to three, did you have that same experience? You know, when I'm assuming you had a hospital birth, most people do, but if you had a home birth, you know, what did that world look like for you afterwards? And were you able to, I guess, did you kind of feel like you're about five steps ahead in the maternal instinct game? Or was it something where, you know, this is a whole new child. And so that's a whole new set of information. And I'm absolutely going to have to start from zero again to learn what their needs and wants are. What what does that look like as a mum of, of multiple kids? You know, I would say it's a bit of both. Mm-hmm. I think my first sort of thought was to say that it's, it was different every time because my three kids are all so different and the experience of meeting them was sort of with each was just as emotional and just as exciting to see what new person is joining our family. But I think what I did slightly differently with my second and then my third baby is I gave myself a little bit more time and a bit more grace. And I had a bit of a better support system both times, even though we are sort of very much a satellite family. We we don't have any family nearby anymore, but I just knew, like I knew what I needed a little bit better. And with my second, it was actually somewhat accidental because I had a very challenging birth uh, with her. And so it's almost like I ended up in that postpartum bubble because I honestly Mm -hmm. just couldn't, it was obvious that I needed help and I couldn't really do anything. And so my husband and my friends have really pulled together this quite amazing support network. And then I was more, I I was like, okay, like, I think maybe this time around, I will have a lactation consultant, even though things are going okay, but I think they can be better. And so, and I also just gave myself time to not, you know, worry about the dishes and, and other things and just to, to bond with my baby, to spend time in bed, because that's all I could do at the time. And so it was a little bit easier to get to know my baby and myself as at the time, a parent of two. And, Mm -hmm. and then I had quite a similar experience with my third because, but he was born during the pandemic. And so that was kind of, you know, a whole other, that's a whole nother. Yeah. It's a whole other (laughs) ballgame, a different postpartum bubble, a bit more too much of a bubble in that sense. But, uh, but yeah, I would say that in that sense, it was a little bit easier to get to know my second and third child just because mm. I gave myself permission to do it and to focus on it a little bit more in those early days and weeks. Mm. Yeah, because um, I kind of feel like, it. you know, we can we can look to these resources and I think this is kind of <laughs> my next kind of question. But essentially, someone once said to me, you know, you are you are the expert on your child, you know, particularly when it comes to seeking out medical advice. You know, if something doesn't feel right, you know, and you're not getting the answers that you want, then you just keep pushing because 
you know, as you say, you know, doctors, medical professionals, whoever it is, and I'm not throwing them under the bus. There's some exceptional medical professionals out there. But if you feel like there's something not quite right, like you know your child best because I feel like, you know, this whole kind of intuition thing and and you do, you spend like a ton of time with them so you can totally get it. But I guess... I guess my question is, you know, when we combine that, you know, evidence-based knowledge and your intuition, that seems like like the perfect combination of, of parenting. Can you, I guess, share with the listeners, you know, what's some of the practical advice that you've got where you can kind of really strike that balance between maybe seeking expert advice and then also relying on your intuition to kind of, you know, with that decision-making, like how do you, how do you bring that together to make it like the best case scenario for yourself? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, just as you said, the, the best case scenario that something we can do is to combine that evidence-based knowledge and our intuitive knowledge that is unique to our babies and our families. And it's actually fairly recently that science has shown that our brain is absolutely able to do that, even when we don't know where that intuitive knowledge is coming from. So whether that's like our true intuition or it's one of those, you know, when we when we could have mistaken it for those something that comes from biases or fads or social media messaging. And so that I think is really, really cool. And in many ways, very comforting, or at least I found it quite comforting in that Mm. when we kind of deliberately bring in evidence-based knowledge, we can kind of filter out irrelevant messaging and it helps Mm -hmm. us hear our true intuitive knowledge more clearly and that's is so important like you said especially in those cases where maybe it's a medical question or if it's something you know should we with an older child like should we delay kindergarten entry like is my child ready for kindergarten so we can read you know, studies that show that generally it's often beneficial, but we, then we also have to look at our unique child and see like, are they ready? Is this going to be good? What situation is our family in? And is it, how is it going to work? Or, you know, another example that I can think of that comes to mind first maybe is the introduction of solid foods. For example, we when we look at expert advice on the timing, like when should we introduce solids and generally around yes. the world, it's around six months, but now it's a little bit more like between four and six months. And then we know that iron is very important, especially for breastfed babies because it gets depleted by around six months. So we know all this advice, but we also need to look at our own baby and see, is this baby ready? And I think that's where no one can really tell us with full certainty when exactly in that like four to six month window, each baby will be ready. But we look at their interest in solids. We look at um, how well are they sitting? Are they able to signal that they're full in, if they're interested in more food? And that would just be unique to, to each baby. And so I think it really helps to know the guidelines, to know the science behind it, to know the reasons why. But then look at our baby and see now is the good time or maybe we should Mm. wait another week or so yeah that makes sense I I wonder though like if there's parents out there who are listening to this and they're like oh I just 
uh, I'm, I just don't feel like I'm tapping into this intuition, this gut feeling. I just like, I, I, there's just way too much noise or like, they're just not feeling it. Like, do you have any advice for that? Like for someone like myself, who was like sitting in the feeding chair four weeks postpartum going, I have no idea like what I'm doing. And this intuition thing is not kicking in. Well, I didn't feel like it was kicking in. Do you have any advice for that at all? You know, I think often it might be that it it has been, you, you, you've definitely been slowly or maybe even not so slowly developing that intuition, but I think it's sometimes it's hard to hear it. And, mm. and it's like, because we have, I think there's just so much to think about when we become parents mm. and that again that 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 caregiving drive that makes us want to do a good job i think it could be almost too loud in our heads because we're thinking like mm. oh am i doing enough am i doing all the right things but i think just trying to quiet that voice of like you know is this enough and is this right can often help us hear that intuitive knowledge that we're kind of developing along as we grow with our babies. And, and that's not easy to do. Like I myself, am probably one of the worst people for it because I I'm always in my head. I'm always thinking I'm reading more. And sometimes it just feels like a bit of a rat's nest of thoughts, right? That's like, oh, well, maybe, maybe I should try this and maybe I should try something else. And, and there's also no harm in trying. Like, for example, you know, in that example with solid foods, when we're not sure about whether our baby's ready, we could always try and then just watch our baby's reaction to it and see how well it goes. And if it doesn't seem right, then we try another day and things like that. So I think there's also, in many cases, there's no harm in trying something like that, as long as it's, you know, a safe and uh, sort of sound thing to do. Mm, yeah. That's something I think as, as doulas, we always encourage that of our parents you know it's not around the shoulds and should nots it is around experimenting and the fact that we're all human beings and so I think we're built to experiment and you know it's something that we talk to our families about particularly in the um, postpartum planning sessions is the fact that you know we don't have this instruction book you know, you are going to have to experiment because you're going to have to work out what works for you, what works for your baby, what works for your family, as you say, what works for your culture, traditions, all of those things. And that's totally okay. I think that was one of the things that really paralyzed me as a mother, you know, for so long was the fact that because I didn't feel that intuition. I was scared to make decisions because I was like, is this the right decision? Is it the wrong decision? Who is going to judge me? And as you say, you're all up in your head. My, my husband calls it, you know, people living rent-free in your brain. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and, and, and I'm just like, I was paralyzed and just either couldn't make a decision or if I made a decision, I was like, okay, well, that's my decision. And then it would kind of be working, working, working. And then I was like, okay, this is not working for us anymore because of whatever reason, mm -hmm. developmental leaps or, you know, my daughter just didn't like that food anymore or, or <laughs> whatever the case was. And the thing was that I really struggled with saying, oh, I need to change it up because then I felt like, is someone going to say, well, you made the wrong decision previously you should have made a different decision. And so 
you know, I think these days that's why I'm so passionate about educating parents about the fact that experiment, 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 and do it until it works and then change it when it doesn't. And that's okay. You know, that's totally fine. Absolutely. I think that's just, that's such a good way to put it. Experiments, because usually almost always there isn't just one right answer. There is a big Mm. wide range of good options. And so there's definitely no harm in Picking something else that now works better for our kids and our families and giving ourselves permission to sort of go back to that range and rethink and say, oh, actually now this is going to work much better. And this was actually one of the biggest reasons for me uh, to write, to do um, the reading and to write my book, because I felt that a lot of the advice out there for parents was very black and white. It was sort of like... You got to do this one thing or else your baby will not thrive or your child will not thrive and you got to do it just so. And, and it just felt like, well, that can be right. Right. Like a scientist, like we know that's never, it's almost never the case. And so then when I back, I went back to the straight back to the peer reviewed literature, I went back to all the research papers and after I read hundreds of studies on baby sleep and feeding and play, I saw that wide range of good, like a wide range of good options that exists for almost every parenting questions, maybe with the exception of a few safety things that Mm -hmm. are quite black and white and kind Mm -hmm. of are for a good reason. But for most other things, there is, there are options and we just have to see like, once we know what those options are, then we can choose what works for us today and we can change that tomorrow or in a week or in a month. Mm. And and did that play out? Uh, like when did you do that research? Was that after baby one or, yeah. How yeah. did that play out with your other children? Like were, were there huge, was there like a huge shift in the way that you parented like after that? Like were there things, I, I, I don't know, like the, the example that I see often with the families that we look after for example, is, you know, the first baby, there's always a cot, the baby's always sleeping in a cot, you know, maybe still in the in the parents' room, but always in a cot, and then, like, baby two or three, co-sleeping, like, from day one, because they're just like, the cot is just the bane of my existence. Like, the cot is now a storage cupboard for something else. Like, mm-hmm. did you see that there was, like, a stark difference between the way that you that you, you tackled it? I think I was certainly more relaxed um, with my second and third. And like my my example would be contact naps and napping yes. in a wrap and, you know, just going with the flow and taking them on long walks where they're going to sleep in the wrap while my toddler runs around and jumps in the puddle and not being yeah. worried about the strictness of wake windows or like that they're not getting the dark environment for the nap and all all of that. (laughs) I think that was certainly, certainly the case because the really, apart from the very early days, there's really no reason science doesn't tell us that baby has to nap in a dark room. It might help in the very early days and weeks to help them develop their circadian rhythm. But later on, 
it's it's not it's not going to be so important but in the you know in the early days when my first I was looking at the clock and trying to put them in a dark room at exactly the right time and which I misunderstood as the two hours got to be two hours and it's like no it depends on the baby yeah <laughs> so, oh you know. gosh I've <laughs> been there I've done that I've got the t-shirt on that one. Oh my <laughs> goodness <laughs> it's so funny though because and I think in, this is going to be my kind of next question. You know, we talk about us as mothers, but you know, there's parents as a team and it's, and kind of getting those people on board. Like my husband, I think is still scarred by my a kind of military approach to my daughter's sleep, which I, because I, you know, being the scientist, I've read the research now. I understand that it's all a bit codswallop and that wake windows are just not actually a thing. It's just like some list that we've just conjured up and there's no evidence behind it. And in fact, when I look at it and I go, "Mm, I think my daughter was actually just one of those low sleep needs children. And, you know, that was what was actually going on. So these days, like she's turning six in two days, which is just, oh my goodness, I can't even. (laughs) (laughs) So these days, just as an example, this is so funny. I'm just like, you know, I always put my daughter to bed and like, you know, previously when they're a baby, you're like crawling out like a ninja and you're like so quiet. And, you know, these days I'm like, grabbing my cup and I'm like going through her drawers and I'm picking up washing. She's still asleep in the bedroom. Like she, like a bomb could go off. She's totally fine. My husband, he was having a bath at the same time. He's going to kill me for this. (laughs) (laughs) Our bathroom shares the same wall as my daughter's room. And we had that in the same house when she was little, right? And if he was having a bath at the same time I was putting her to bed in the old house and still in this house, when you pull the plug, you can hear the gurgling of the water go down the drain, right? right. So he would never, ever take the plug out of the bath <laughs> because of fear that he would wake her. And that's probably stems from my stress head. Like if you make a noise to wake this child up, like, you know, type of thing <laughs> when she's little. But these days, like she's totally fine. The other day I walked out and I went into the bathroom. I was like, why is there water still in here? Like, this is so weird. <laughs> I walked out and I said, why didn't you pull the plug out of the water? Like out of the bath. And he goes, oh, I didn't want to wake her. And I was like, oh, my God, we are six years postpartum, mate, <laughs> and you are still on this, like, crazy sleep train thing that we're on. So oh. I guess <laughs> that's that too cute. <laughs> That is my next question. How, like, okay, so we know from the research that, you know, these things kick in for not just mum, but dad and other caregivers. How do we kind of get them on board with that? You know, how do we come together as a team? What's that kind of effective communication look like in terms of parenting decisions and, and things like that? I know. I think it's such a, it's a, it's a tricky question because we can never really be sort of 50, 50, right. With with our family. It's almost like that's a a myth as well, Anya. (laughs) Totally. Right. Totally. And so striving for that would not help at all. It's almost like we both want to be a hundred percent, right. And in terms of our emotional commitment to our kids and our family and each other as well. 
And, but it's also like, well, how do we do that? And there's actually um, quite a lot of studies that show that moms, of course, still do the client's share of the physical and emotional labor of raising children. Absolutely. And I know you've had discussions about that in the early yeah. uh, on the podcast, for sure. <laughs> that would really nice. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I've read her book and it's just, yeah, it's, it's really eye-opening and wonderful way to put it. But there's, I guess... I think for us, at least in our family, what it came down to is trying to empower each other and appreciate each other for what we do, but also to sort of have our own, like, I don't want to say domains, but to essentially what Eve talks about in the book, to have our own tasks that we complete start to finish and without having to remind the other person, set it up for the other person. And that's just been a game changer. We kind of stumbled upon that when I first was a baby and it it's oh, just been wow. wonderful so it's been it, it was it's been a long time because what I found at the time which now sounds almost funny is that when my husband would consistently give her a bath in the evening when she was a baby that gave me just that like totally guaranteed time about half an yes. hour to just be and do whatever and then I would take her and nurse her to sleep and spend time with her but that half hour was just so instrumental for my like mental health and my physical yeah. health that when I realized that I was like, let's just do this. And it works amazingly. Oh, absolutely. That it just kind of reminds me, I'm not sure if you're aware of this study, but there was a study in Australia and they showed that they kind of surveyed mothers in the first six months after birth. And they showed that mothers who took 30 minutes per week, not even per day, but per week, were three times less likely to develop depressive symptoms, which just, you know, you've just highlighted again. It was, it's that 20, 30 minute window that you get where you're just like, I can just be with me, you know, before. And I think also, I don't know about you, but that lead up to the night, I used to get really anxious because I was like, oh, great. Okay. How many times are we waking up tonight? You know, and it's just that classic, you know, particularly I was exclusively breastfeeding. My daughter wouldn't take a bottle. Like it was just all on me, but having that opportunity to have that time for yourself and maybe like, what did you do? Did you, do you mind me asking? Like, did you have a little kind of self-care routine or like, did you just go, I'm sitting and I'm like not talking to anyone and I'm just having the space to myself? Yeah, you know, I think it depended. Yeah, sometimes I'd take a quick shower or sometimes I would just yes. like space out, you know, look at the wall and just like not have to do anything because <laughs> I was in the same boat. Now, none of my kids took a bottle, none of them. Yeah. And so it was always me. But having that, I think it was the fact that that time that little small slice of self-care was built into each day and it was like mm. almost guaranteed as long as my husband was home was just really great and it, of course it wasn't the only thing that he did that giving her back yeah. but that one thing was just very consistent and that was yeah it's really wonderful. And I think it helped him as well. You know, that was another thing going yeah. back to that intuition. I think spend, it was also his guaranteed time to spend time with her. 
and to to play with her and to sort of follow her lead and and things like that because I was fortunate you know living in Canada I got a whole year of maternity leave with each of my kids oh. which was like amazing unbelievable right but my husband went back to work after about a week a little bit longer with my second but not very long and so for him coming home from work this was the time that he always had with our daughter. And then as she grew, she also got to look forward to and appreciate that time she had with daddy. So that was uh, that was also, I think, really good. So it was good for everybody. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I feel like you've kind of also touched on my next question as well around like that anxiety and overwhelm and like accepting like that, you know, to come full circle, the fact that you've said and acknowledged that parenting is a big responsibility and we should feel overwhelmed like that. I think that's really interesting. And, you know, learning to accept that concept is I think in and of itself a big pill to swallow, but I think it's really accurate as well, because if it, (laughs) if it wasn't such a big deal, then we wouldn't feel that kind of overwhelm. Uh, Do you have, do you have any tips? This is, just before we jump into our rapid fire, do you have any tips, I guess, for parents, any strategies to kind of build that confidence and and competence over time? Is there there anything that you could share with listeners? I think for me, it's kind of exactly what you said is, is understanding and becoming comfortable with the fact that it's overwhelming. It's like, you know, with baby sleep, accepting that we're not going to have a full night of sleep. I think it gets Mm -hmm. us halfway to feeling better about the whole thing, right? Not feeling that stress and anxiety. And I think in the same way, accepting that parenthood is meant to overwhelm us. And that's, it's a sign of importance of this phase in our lives and not a sign of us being incompetent. It's, it's Mm. just what it is. And it's, it's difficult. It's, it's, it's one of the hardest thing and the most beautiful thing we ever do, but it is one of the hardest things and, and just kind of living with it and accepting Mm. it as, as for what it is. I think Mm. that's, that's one of, one of, one of the things that helped me most personally. And especially with every, with every child that we added, it was getting busier and sort of, in a sense, there was more and more on my plate and just knowing that that's normal, that's normal, that's to be expected was, was helpful. Yeah. And I think, maybe like to to kind of add to that like if it is overwhelming and it perhaps if you are struggling like as you did like you said you have an amazing network around you of people who are just incredibly supportive you know I think it would be remiss of us to not acknowledge the fact that we're not meant to do this by ourselves like that's when I think it becomes like it kind of dips into that unhealthy overwhelm. You know, if, if you are trying, I think I, yeah, I've said in multiple kind of podcasts, if you think you can do motherhood by yourself, good luck <laughs> because you will quickly work out that that is not the case. It is too hard. It is way too hard to do by ourselves. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I think building that in the network around us the best we can is is also a wonderful strategy. And absolutely, it's something that we a lot of us don't have that village anymore or at all or 
you know, in terms of family support, right? But there is, there are other ways that we can build that support network mm-hmm. around us mm-hmm. for sure. What did you find, just out of like interest, what did you find were some of the things that were really helpful from that village? Was it like, were they doing meals? Were they, you know, looking after your toddler? Like, what did that look like for you? Yeah, it was a little bit of uh, of each. I, the, the the my friends did organize a meal train, which was mm-hmm. at the time just really fantastic. We had a friend take our toddler uh, for a little bit, which was also really wonderful. And then, but I think with the meal train, the thing I loved most was that little visit that we we got uh, with the, the 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 people or the person who brought it, and I, I felt that that was just that was just really wonderful. It was it was it was very nice. And I also, after that experience was my, with my second baby, that was challenging. I ended up having a doula for a postpartum doula for my third baby, because it was sort of, I, I felt like this is where I could get a little bit of extra support. And yeah. it ended up being not quite the full support uh, package that it was meant to be because it was early on in the pandemic. Oh, but yeah, even right. what we could do was really, really fantastic. And yeah. it was it was pretty wonderful. Oh man, that's unfortunate. Because in Australia, we were permitted workers, which meant that we could still go to people's houses. So yeah, okay. Very different in Canada then. Yeah, we um, ended up having um, a hospital support. So my doula was yeah. able to come um, right after I gave birth, but not into my home at the time. So that was wow. um, the part that never happens. But but I think, you know, even just having planned for it, I would certainly yes. recommend that anyone who has that option, I would, I would say that that gave me a lot of comfort, yeah. even at the planning stages, just knowing that there will be that extra support. Mm-hmm. Oh, amazing. We are going to jump into our rapid fire. <laughs> a couple good. of questions just to finish our little chat. So Anya, what would be your top tip for mothers? Well, you know, I think keeping with the theme of our discussion, I would say that it's seeking that evidence-based knowledge. You know, as you say, knowledge is power. I heard you say that before. <laughs> And so (laughs) for me as well. And so seeking that knowledge and then giving yourself space and time it, whatever way it might look for each person in each family to nurture that intuition, that true intuition that comes from getting to know our kids and then ourselves as parents, as our families grow and change and as our kids grow and just trying to Yeah, just giving ourselves that permission to be overwhelmed sometimes and to to feel the importance of that phase in our lives. I think, yeah, that's really important. Do you have a go-to resource? You've mentioned your book already. Is there anything else that you would add on top of that? A workshop, anything that you felt was really kind of quite helpful for you um, during your motherhood journey? Uh, well, I, yeah, so I looked into a lot of, uh, I've read probably most parenting books that are out there, especially for the baby stage. And I do have um, a number of favorites apart from my own. I, I wrote my own because I couldn't quite find what I was looking for, like from that ecologist, from the environment perspective. 
But some of my favorites are The Science of Mom by Alice Callahan. It's a wonderful book that explores the science of baby's first chair as well. It's more about delving into uh, specific parenting questions that are often tricky. And I feel like she's done a wonderful job. I found it really, really helpful. I've got uh, one of my other favorites is the work of Ellen Satter and the Satter Institute on baby led feeding. That was, that's really wonderful as well. There are a couple books and a website that they have. And then of course my own book, I, I'm a bit biased in recommending it, but uh, I, I wanted to write something that uh, would help parents see that there isn't one, you know, one answer most of the time. And that I wanted to outline that range of good options for baby's first year. And so it focuses on just the first year from birth to 12 months. And it sort of draws what I call the um, optimal nurturing environment, which is kind of that whole range of good options um, that parents can choose from. And I was hoping that it would help others to feel a little more supported and a little less worried. I love that. Thank you. And our last question, which we ask all of our guests, and we've poached it off Brene Brown, but what do you keep on your bedside table? Uh, I think I won't be alone in saying that it's books, lots of books. Yeah. Um, <laughs> my, I recently finished Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell, which I okay. really enjoyed. It's really eye-opening in many ways. And then I think my other two at the moment are a couple of books that my preteen is reading because I wanted yeah. to to be able to talk to her about what she's reading. So that's been also quite an interesting experience. Sometimes it's books I've read before and sometimes it's something totally new to me. So <laughs> I love that. My um my daughter, as I said, is turning six and she's obsessed with Harry Potter and dragons at the moment. And she picked up a a graphic novel um the other day. And, um, you know, she's, she's doing well with reading, but like, we're actually reading the graphic novel together, which, oh my goodness, it's, it's just this like stage, I feel like of motherhood where I'm like, oh my gosh, she's like really tuning into like all the things that I love. Yeah. <laughs> so with sharing those experiences, she's absolutely obsessed with Harry Potter, which I love. So I think we're going to start reading those books as well together, which is, oh, that'll yeah, be so fun. I know, I know, like I just cannot wait. Like it's going to be so good. Anya, thank you so much for your time today. It has been so wonderful. I love the fact that I I actually feel so validated after speaking with you. I'm like, yes, this motherly intuition thing is garbage. Um, <laughs> this was not supposed to just like happen, as you say, magically. It's going to happen over time and there is actual physiological changes that occur in our brains that we just need to really, I guess, listen to, right, along with our experiences with our children. So if any of the listeners uh, want to know a bit more information about you, how to contact you, where can we find you? So I have a website, kidecology.com. And then there's links to all my to all my um, social media there. I love hearing from listeners and readers. So there's a contact form on the website as well. And then my book, Baby Ecology, it can be found on Amazon and really everywhere that books are sold and can be ordered through a local bookstore or a library, which is always my favorite way. Yeah, <laughs> I love a good library. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for coming and until next time, we will see you. 
Thank Bye. you. Bye. If you loved this episode, please hit the subscribe button and leave a review. If you know someone out there who would also love to listen to this episode, please hit the share button so they can benefit from it as well. Thank you for listening to The Science of Motherhood. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Science of Motherhood. If you would like to contact us, we are at ifillyourcup.com or you can DM us at ifillyourcup underscore via Instagram. You can find all of our services including our postpartum in-home care and our fill your freezer meal delivery service as well through both those channels. Thanks so much for listening.